0: Good morning. It is great to be with you. Uh, I've been to Revelation Church a couple of times before, but I think last time was on a Zoom meeting, which is must have been something like a year and a half ago, which is kind of takes the fun out of it a little bit. Um, And the time before that, we were in Duncan and Hannah's living room, and I don't know, there was quite a lot of people crammed in there, but maybe as many as 20, maybe not. Look at all of you. This is amazing. I mean he tells me lots of things. I believe him, but still it's nice to see that you that you exist and that there is this this great venue that you're in and here you are worshiping God and be with you. It's great. Right. Um Sorry. So, what are we talking about this morning? We are continuing your series on the crucifixion. I've been asked to speak on the idea of... I'm already struggling with holding one of these. I'm so used to a a fancy headset thing that I don't have enough hands um, to even open my Bible. This is going to be a delight. You're just going to watch me... No, I'm going to cope, but I have verbal diarrhea, as you've already learned, and I'm just going to talk about all the things that I'm doing um, as I try and figure out where on earth we are. Um, If if you've got Bible with you, if you want to stick your finger in 1 Peter chapter 2, that will help you in a second, then we're going to hop around a little bit. We're going to be talking about the idea of the cross as substitution. So the idea that Jesus stood in our place when he died on the cross, which I mean, it's, it's, it's an easy set of words to understand. I don't think it's an experience that we have that often. I was thinking, just as preparing this, how um, often would I be asked to stand in someone else's place? Now, that's happened to me a few times, like in, in a kind of work setting where, say, where my boss has said, oh, I can't make this meeting. Could you go for me? Could you kind of go in my place? This is roughly what I think about what they're gonna talk about. Could you go and represent me? I've done that a few times. But it's very, very rare, as in I can't really think of occasions when I would, for me to do that downwards, if that makes sense. So when when I do it in a job, it's because my boss, someone who's above me, has said, oh, come and stand in my place. I can't think of any occasion where I have ever willingly gone, oh, I'm going to go and stand in your place, person who is, I think, for some reason, below me, whatever on earth that might mean. It's not the way around it works. It sounds quite unpleasant. Uh, which is putting it mildly when we start to think a little bit about the cross. This will be in 1 Peter 2 in just a second, but this, this story might help you kind of get into the picture of what Jesus was doing. There's a film, um, came out about 20 years ago, called To End All Wars. I don't know, quite possibly no one's seen it, um, based on a, a book called The Miracle on the River Kwai about um, a Japanese prisoner of war camp towards the end of the Second World War, where... I mean, the Japanese were famous for not treating prisoners of war well. So these are um, men who'd been fighting in, in kind of Western armies against Japan. They'd, been, they'd lost a battle. They'd been captured. They were treated badly. They had to build something that was called the Bridge of Death, um, which it, it became called cool because of how the workers on it were treated. They came to review, they'd written lots of guys who survived, wrote lots of accounts about it. They referred to themselves as forsaken men. And they grew to hate the men who captured them, which makes sense. They were were treated awfully. And eventually, over time, their hate died. Because it was just too awful, what they were going through, day by day by day, until they fell into a kind of black despair. And then one day, this is the kind of famous moment that happens in the film. You might have heard this story before. They've been working, they finish the day of work, the Japanese guards count the shovels back in, and they say one of the shovels is missing. And they line all the men up and say, the person who lost the shovel needs to step forwards, or we will kill all of you. And they believed them, because it would not be the first time that they'd acted like that. They meant it. So a guy grudgingly steps forwards, and the guards beat him to death in front of everyone else. And then all the prisoners think, well, he shouldn't have lost the shovel. The next day, as they come to get the shovels out, and they count them out, there aren't any missing. The guards miscounted. And the men who the prisoners began to realize that the guy who stepped forward was completely innocent. He just didn't want everyone else to die. And the thing about this story that really gets me is that these men who were in despair start to write about how seeing that changed them. They, started to t- they genuinely started to tell each other about Jesus and about the way that he was an innocent who'd stood in the place of others. Many of them came to faith. They didn't know who this guy was, many of them. They'd not really spoken to him. They'd assumed he was just another forsaken man. But they started treating each other kindly, which they'd never done before. They started imagining there might be a future. and when they were eventually freed at the end of the war, they forgave their captors because they'd seen an innocent man stand in their place and die for them. I'm going to read from one Peter chapter two'm starting at verse twenty one This is kind of cutting in the middle of a paragraph, but you'll, uh, you'll be able to follow along. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christ also suffered for you. He bore our sins in his body. He bore our sins in his body. In other words, what's Peter saying? Jesus died when I should have done. Jesus acted like this seemingly anonymous man on the river Kwai who stepped forward and said, Oh, I, I, I will die in the place of all these people. I will take the weight of that. Except Peter goes a step further because he says he, he suffered for you. Yes, but he bore our sins in his body. All of them were innocent in that story I told. No one had done this thing that the guards were cross about. What the Bible says is that we're not in quite the same boat. We're not innocent. We'll come back to that idea in a little bit. But Jesus stood in our place, bore our sins in his body. Which sounds so Strange. It would have sounded a little bit less strange to the original readers Peter was writing to. They, many of them were Jewish, and they were familiar with some of the Old Testament stories, some of the, the background of what Jesus was doing, some of the language being used would be familiar to them. So there's an event in the Old Testament, we can read about it in, in Leviticus chapter 16, that would happen every single year called the Day of Atonement, which is the day that the things that Israel, then the nation, the people of God, had done that offended God, what we would call sin, it got a chance to be wiped away. And it's quite an intricate set of things that they would do on this day every year. Kind of the book of Leviticus is sort of shaped, so this is the high point. In fact, the whole book has been like, how on earth can we get to God? Now we find this, this great day of atonement when there seems to be a way. And one of the things that would happen every year is that the high priest would take two goats. This is, this is important, but sounds strange. Two goats. And the first goat, he would take, and he would sacrifice the goat. He would kill the goat. He'd take the blood of the goat and a bit of hyssop, which sounds like an odd detail. But if you read the Gospels, you'll find that appears again at the crucifixion. But take some hyssop, dip it in the blood, and kind of throw it around a lot which sounds really strange to us, you think, gosh, the smell, if nothing else, and the flies, And but he starts flicking it around onto the altar, and it, it, towards the most holy place, the bit of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence was, where they did not go. And the first goat, being short, lets them go into the presence of God. The blood that they flick about allows them to enter the presence of God, you might say, why is that? We're going to pause on that thought because that would require us to kind of spend quite a lot of time in Leviticus to kind of unpack why on earth that was the case. But the blood let them go into the presence of God. And then they get their way in. And then they get, they get the second goat. I'm going to read to you from Leviticus chapter 16, just a, a couple of verses, starting at Verse 20. And when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, that's flicking around the blood, that's what he's talking about, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron, so that's the high priest at the time, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. So picture it, there's a lot of blood around. The goat is terrified because of the stench of it. He's just watched his friend be killed. And Aaron stands there and puts his I got any hands Puts his hands onto the goat's head as it starts to bleat in fear, thinking, what on earth is gonna happen to me? And they confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel. So they stand while this terrified goat is quivering and speak over it everything that the people has done wrong. Which I, I think they probably mean as literally as they can. They take their time about it and they list off everything in the last year that they are aware of that the nation has done wrong. I suspect it took a long time for all we might think they might I'm sure they missed some stuff, but they'll have kind of tried to list off everything that they could. I don't know if they've kind of had like a, a several day thing where they ask someone to write down their sins on a bit of paper, and put it in a box, and then Aaron kind of reads them out. I don't know. We're not told so, so probably not, but something like that. They're kind of, he's deliberately saying everything while his hands are pressed on the goat's head. Um, confess over all the iniquity of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat. So the idea here is that what Aaron is doing is he is saying all this stuff we've listed, that's gone wrong, that we've done wrong, that we've offended God with, whether it was deliberate or not, every thought, every feeling, every action that stepped outside of the law, we, we put it on the goat and it stands on the goat's head. And then they send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who's in readiness. There's a bloke that they're waiting. His job is to take the goat out of the camp. And the goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So they, you'd think they'd kill him. That's not what they do. They, they take the goat who's got all the sins on his head, poor goat. He's led all the way out into the wilderness and he's let go probably thinks all his dreams have come true (laughs) he's let go from the crazy people and allowed to wander off into the wilderness the imagery of it what's supposed to be going on is that everything they've done wrong is carried a long way away it's it's actually carried outside of the the camp where they lived because this is when they're wandering in the wilderness Uh, and into well, I mean, actually the Hebrew literally says into the place of goat demons, but let's, let's leave that one. <laughs> We're not going to touch that. But it, essentially into the, into the, Jesus called it the outer darkness, into the place where God is not. We might use the word hell. So kind of metaphorically, the goat takes everything that they've done wrong away, as far away as possible, and is left to wander. They had a name for the goat, uh, they they called it the scapegoat. That's where that word comes from, that we might still use today. I mean a similar thing, actually. Someone who you lay all the blame on for something. That's, that's what's going on. Lay all the blame on the goat and send the goat away. What Peter's saying when he said that Jesus bore our sins in his body is that we essentially pressed our hands on Jesus' head and spy faith when we became Christians. Said all our sins, and then he bore them away into the outer darkness. By faith, Jesus is our scapegoat. He's the one on whom we get to lay all the blame for the things that we did wrong. He carries our sins away. Away from us, away from our lives, away from the camp, into hell. There's a. there's an example of this that, that helps us out that happened to Jesus just before he died in the Gospels. This story will be familiar to many of you. There was Jesus um, he has been on trial. He's taken to Pilate, the Roman governor, who doesn't really understand why he's been asked to condemn this guy. He's not really up on the Jewish religion. He doesn't really get what the priests have against Jesus, what it is that Jesus has said that's so inflammatory, but he'd rather people weren't arguing. He just wants everything really peaceful. He kind of tries to get rid of the problem. It doesn't really work. He thinks he's got a great idea. He thinks he's he's probably innocent. So he thinks, I know what. The people clearly love this guy. I'll I'll go out to the crowd. There's this old tradition I've dug up where I'm allowed to let someone go free on this day. And I'll offer them this horrible murderer who everybody should hate, who's been killing and rebelling and doing terrible things or I'll offer them this preacher man who seems to be calm and gentle and wise and the people clearly love clearly they'll let him go and we'll kill the guy we're supposed to kill under the law and it'll all be it'll all be fine if you know the story that's not quite how it goes down Barabbas this murderer is the one that the crowd whipped up by the priests start to say oh no no free him So literally what happens before Jesus dies is they let a murderer go and they kill an innocent man in his place. Which, why is that detail in the story? Well, it happened, but to help us see what's going on in the cross. So that Jesus is condemned to be crucified in the place of a murderer is what happened to us. By faith. That us who deserve death, now you might think, hang on a minute. But hold that thought. Us who deserve death are let go, and Jesus instead comes and stands in our place, and done dies for us. Now the natural thing to think then is to think, this guy Barabbas sounds awful, but I am not a murderer. That's not me. Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, you kind of know what what I'm going to say next, you kind of see where this is going to go. Something in our hearts, I think, because I still think I think it, is like, I'm not that bad. Like I I I needed something. Sure, I needed Jesus to rescue me, sure. But I'm just something in me finds it slightly offensive when I put myself in the same category as Barabbas. Like I, I'm not that bad. I I don't know that I did deserve nailing to a stick of wood. For all I clearly I needed help. Yeah, sure. I think one of the things that believing that Jesus stands in our place on the cross, helps us with, is realism about what we call sin. Because I am so much worse than I think I am. So much worse than I think I am. And I think that's true for you too. So much worse than we think we are. Almost like however bad you think you are in your worst place, it's probably at least a little bit worse than that. even that is a hard idea to get our hands around. Because however bad we think we are, I think it's pretty easy to find someone else to point out that you can say is worse. And I mean, uh, that's true. You could find a monster from history and go, I am not as bad as them, and yeah, well, I'm sure you're not. I think on the face of it, that's clearly true. Probably, you could look around the room if you really wanted to, and you won't say it out loud, but you could be like, I am not as bad as them. And if you're really honest with yourself, if you look to the left and the right, you're probably like, I think I'm doing okay. <laughs> Almost whoever you're sat by. Because that's just how we think. Even like I I know I've done some stuff wrong, but I'm not that bad. It's um, I don't know if any of you at school played what I can't remember what it was actually called, but I, I'm gonna call it the life draft game. I think it was supposed to be some sort of critical thinking exercise. Um, I'm not 100% sure what we're supposed to teach, but the, the gist of it would be you'd be told this boat is sinking. Here is a list of 10 different people who are on the boat. And you're given like a handful of details about them, like how old they are, what their job is, that sort of thing. The lifeboat sits six. Who are you going to save? That would, be, that would be the game. Um, I think it was probably supposed to figure out something about what, how do you figure out value was probably the idea it was supposed to be teaching. I, I mean, it, practically what it did was just a great way to get someone in the room to say, I think we should kill the child, which I, think that was the, I think that was the point of it, because someone would always do so and then realise what's coming out of their mouth. Why do I mention that? I, uh, an author called Donald Miller suggests that we all play the life five game every day, all the time like constantly checking our value against everyone around us do i make it on the boat do i make it on the boat i mean he he thinks it's awful that we do but do i make it on the boat jesus actually addressed a similar idea in um a story that he told in luke chapter 18 He said, two men went into the tem- went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He's playing the life raft game. He's looking around the room and like, Jesus, thank you so much that you've made me a good bloke. I'm not like Matt. The, I like Matt. Matt's great. Um, it, the, it, it needs to be someone on the front whose name I know is, you know. Uh, the... <laughs> He's thanking Jesus that he is winning at the Life, Life game. He's like, I might not be the best, but I'm doing okay. Thank you, Jesus. Um, he says, I fast twice a week, more than you. I give tithes of all that I get. And then we come to the other guy. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, that's the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, the guy who doesn't play the life-life game or does but thinks he's losing, he says, I need someone to stand in my place. I can't do this. is the guy who wins, says Jesus. When we look at the cross, we're supposed to realize that sin's pretty awful if it took God to die. But, wow, well, He did. And he came and stood for us so that we get on the boat. Oh, I mean, Realistically, how if you play that game properly, who deserves to get on the boat and get off the ship? Well, Jesus does, and no one else, and there's one bloke on the life raft, but he gives up his place for every single one of us. We can't ignore sin, and, and God, God doesn't think he can let sin off. I think sometimes we think that's how it should work. Why does God have to stand in our place? Surely he can just let it off. He's kind, To say otherwise makes him sound really, really angry. But God can't let us sin and remain who he is because God is just. God is just. He's justice. So, what he chose to do was not find a loophole. I think sometimes it can sound like that. But find a way to fulfill the demands of justice and yet be kind of merciful to all of us. Let us go, which was him coming and standing in our place. In Galatians chapter 3. That's not Galatians chapter 3. That is. Well, we're reading from verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. In other words, the Bible has already said, you die on a cross, you're cursed. And Paul, writing, thinks that's a problem. Because he's saying, how do we worship God who is cursed? But what Paul realizes and tries to explain to them Is that Jesus became a curse for us? He went to what I think a couple of weeks ago, Duncan was calling the godless place. He took the curse for us, if you like. The judge is judged in our place. So he fulfills all the demands of justice by instead putting their full demands on him on himself. So when we look at the cross, we see, yes, that our sin is worse than we thought, and actually therefore that God loves us more than we might have thought but we'll come back to that thought but also that god is just and loves justice he he won't go through a loophole he meets all the demands of the law including the father giving his own son up to death which means we can't ignore oppression that's maybe not an application of the cross lots of us look at and think but i think it's where it should take us can't ignore oppression in the world we have to do something about it. Yesterday morning, I was sat in my friend Dan's garden having a cup of coffee um, and a nice croissant that he'd given me. I don't know why I told you that detail. Um, it, it was very pleasant. He, My friend Dan has just started a business uh, that is right in its early days, so it's employing him. But his grand aim is the reason he, started, he left his job and started the business is that he wants to employ people who w- would find it difficult to find employment. First within our church, but then Beyond that, I think, as well, in the future. Now, it's very early days for him, but he is motivated by a desire for justice. If he was telling this story, he'd just started by telling you about people he's seen around the city and being like, "I wish I could give them a job." He has looked at the cross, seen God's justice fully displayed, seen that it does not fall on him, but that God is still just, and he wants to live the same way and believes that one day injustice will end, but in the short term, he's going to do everything he can to get rid of it. And then in the long term, we see that Christ on the cross has endured and exhausted sin's curse, so that there is a day coming when no more tears will flow, Then everything that is wrong will be righted, and everything that is sad will come untrue. Last week, um, I think Jen was, was talking about the Passover, so I, I won't kind of go through the story for you, but there's this moment right at the end where they, they kill the firstborn lamb in order to spare the firstborn son. That's the kind of logic of it, that those who have the blood painted on their doorposts don't die. So the lamb, the firstborn lamb, stands in the firstborn son's place, and the blood on the doorpost, it kind of appropriates that for each house so that death passes over them. It's the same for us. Jesus stands in our place so that death passes over us because the lamb died so that we can go free. If the blood is on our doorposts, that's such a weird thing to say. Um, As an analogy, this is is strange. What would that even look like? Can you imagine? You go home and start putting blood on your doorpost. Your neighbors would phone the police. Um, Not least because of the flies. But what would it look like for us to metaphorically paint the blood of Jesus on our doorpost? It looks like faith. It looks much like, what does it look like for us to push our hands on Jesus' head and say, these are my sins, they're now on you. What does it look like? Faith. It looks like believing that Jesus did die in our place. And therefore... That our sins will not be attached to us. Therefore, that the curse will not be attached to us. Therefore, that death will not be attached to us. No more sin, no more curse, no more death. That's what happens when Jesus stands in our place. So what is that final thought, what does that tell us? It, it tells us that God loves us. It tells us that God loves us. That he's for us, that he wants us, that... Jesus came, it says in Romans 5, not not to meet a bunch of people who were already his friends, but he came to people who were enemies. He came to a country, a nation at first, that rejected the law that he'd already given them in the past, that killed his prophets that he'd sent to them, that were confident like that Pharisee of their own righteousness, who thought, yeah, I can stand before God, who looked down on other countries, other nations. And he also came to all the rest of the world, Nations that in Romans chapter 1 it says had exchanged the truth of God for a lie, had exchanged glory for images, had exchanged a fountain of truth for cracked cisterns. He came to a people with hands full of blood whose righteous deeds, Isaiah says, are like filthy rags, which is a very polite translation of what Isaiah actually wrote. You can ask me of a coffee if you really want to know. Um, He came to people like us Awful, terrible people, deep on the inside, broken, doing all right, pretending on the outside that we're doing okay. And he came, God, with his blistering holiness, with eyes like fire, with a voice, the psalmist says, that when he speaks, the earth melts. The one who, if anything that is wrong, goes into his presence, it it, it combusts. Our God is a consuming fire, the writer to the Hebrews says. you think when this God meets this earth, well, the earth would, would melt. Everything would end. The story of the Old Testament is this constant refrain, who can ascend the hill of the Lord, which basically means who can get to God? Who can get to God? How can I get to God? God is blistering holiness. My hands are full of blood. How can I get to God? I can't. I can't. I need someone who can climb the hill for me. I need someone to take the blood off my hands who can still stand in the presence of God. I need someone to stand in my place. So what does love look like? It looks like a father who sends his own son to die for people who hate him. To make them his friends. If you ever doubt that God loves you, which I mean, I'm sure you do, because that's, that's kind of normal. I do all the time. If you ever doubt that God loves you, look to the cross and see a God who chooses to die. Which, I mean, that's a stupid sentence. God is life. Life that chooses to die for you, in your place, to love you because he wants you. And because he stood in our place, we get to stand in his. It's a great exchange. And what does it mean to stand in his? It means a status. It means we're called righteous. It means that we will rise from the dead like Jesus did in the age to come. It means hope for the future, that the world is being renewed, that Jesus will come and make all things new. It means that we're called heirs of the kingdom. Who is God? He's the king. We're his heirs. You and I, if you love Jesus, princes and princesses of the household of God. That's nonsense. It's true, though. We are given a great bounty, like the spoils of war that Jesus wins. He comes to bring to our feet. And better than all of that, because we are united with Christ, because he stood in our place and swapped places with us, we are lifted into the very Godhead to commune with God. In other words, what do you get? He takes your sin, what do you get? You get Jesus. You get you get Jesus. I mean you get a whole bunch of other stuff too, but you you get who cares? You get Jesus. I mean could there be anything better? You get to know the living God who wants you and is for you and who loves you because he chose to come and stand in your place. You didn't do a thing. You sort of reached out in faith to do your painting of blood hands thing. He didn't do anything. He did all. He did all. He loves you. He wants you. (laughs) Wow. Wow. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, In him uh, who knew no sin, sorry, he made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God wow wow well, we're going to respond to that now by taking bread and wine by eating the body and blood of Jesus, by responding in communion by eating the food that he gives us and saying, and, and, and kind of doing again our hands on our heads yeah, our hands on his head thing, doing again the blood and doorpost thing, doing again the faith thing and saying yeah, yeah, that that's that's for me And they're receiving all of the goodness that comes when Jesus stands in our place. So the band are going to come. They're going to lead us in a song as we start. And we are again going to see that God is for us. That's what this meal that we're going to have is really about. God is for us.